Good morning and Christian greetings to each and every one of you. I um, think if we would, as we think about it, I, we put quite a bit of stock in last words. What somebody says just before they die or whatever. Um, John 14 through 17 is Jesus' final discourse. Um, and, uh, and then also we have Paul's letters, and one of those is just prior to his death as well. I was just uh, looking at what some famous people have said before they died, and it can be pretty enlightening, and I'm not going to focus on this, but um, Winston Churchill died in 1965. His last words were, I'm bored with it all. Think about it. Vincent van Gogh, the Dutch painter, said this before he died in 1890. The sadness will last forever. It's just pretty uh, sad to think that that is literally what these men were contemplating as they crossed over death. Um, in A.D. 54, Nero became emperor of Rome. And he was emperor until, or I should say of the Roman Empire, was more than just Rome, until his death by suicide in A.D. 68, so 14 years later. What's interesting is that he was considered a deity, uh, and yet he took his own life. Um, in July of 64, a fire broke out in Rome, burning for five to six days, destroying more than half the city. In response to the allegations that he had started the fire to free up space for his massive building plans, Nero blamed the Roman Christians beginning the first systematic persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. Tacitus uh, was a historian living during that time, and he wrote this, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures, tortures those whom he, the common people called Christians, a group hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So, you know, it's recorded there in, uh, in the first century that this is what Nero did, that he blamed the Christians. Second Timothy is Paul's final letter, likely written about AD 67, which would be about three years after the uh, fire in Rome, and after a second arrest uh, about a year earlier, now he's awaiting his execution. It is thought that Paul was beheaded within several weeks or maybe several months after he wrote this letter of 2 Timothy. This letter is primarily one of encouragement to Timothy. 
a young church leader, but it also has some warnings. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> There's a part of this that is very familiar, but I, I found it intriguing in looking at this chapter as a whole rather than just picking a verse or two like um, is often done when I hear this chapter referred to. <clears throat> We're going to be, uh, I'm not going to read this all now, but please keep your Bibles here. We're going to be walking down through here and looking what, what uh, Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, here in just the weeks before his own death, knowing that he was facing imminent execution under Nero. <clears throat> I've divided this into two categories, and I've entitled this morning's message, um, Abide in Truth. But the first part of this is avoid the godlessness, and then the last part is abide in truth. And, uh, and so this is a warning that Paul is writing to Timothy. So verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. So what an encouraging way to just to start out. Just say it the way it is, that you're going to face difficulty. Um, he's referring to some point in the future, the last days will come. Uh, but the term last days, is, as used in the New Testament, means that time between now whenever that was written or when we're living and the return of Christ. It's the, it's the church age. It's not some distant future time, but it is here and now. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He's reminding Timothy that churches and church leaders are going to face difficult challenges. There's going to be perilous times. There's going to be dangerous times ahead. And while these difficult and dangerous times include potential persecution, Paul is warning them, him about other dangers and difficulties as well. It's not limited to this. There's going to be false teachings. There's going to be deception. There's going to be those that abandon truth. And all of these are the types of difficulties that the church will be facing uh, in the last days in that time before Christ returns again. And then, just like that, I mean, he, um, he says that there's going to be difficult times. Then he sets out in the next three verses, I believe it is, listing 18 characteristics of what that might look like. Um, 18 characteristics of ungodly actions and attitudes. Given the context, I believe that he is referring first to people in the church, which is a little bit uh, disturbing. Obviously, unbelievers act this way, but he's addressing these characteristics present within the church. Verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> For people, he doesn't say what, but we're facing difficult times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now this is certainly not a comprehensive list of godlessness, but it does give a description for what godless people will do. And, um, and he describes uh, this here, and, and it is a quite extensive list as you look down through here. I find it interesting that Paul begins this list with lovers of self, and then the last one is lovers of pleasure. And in a sense, I believe that these first and last, this first and last characteristic describes the essence of the other 16 that are in between. That a lot of it is centered around loving ourselves and wanting pleasure and just simply wanting what we want. And that is what, uh, what, what these others uh, show then. Lovers of self and pleasure are those that, are, that pursue their own desires at the expense of those around them and God himself. Now, someone who loves self and loves pleasure in a lot of ways is the picture of the American dream. If I work hard and earn the money, I have the right to indulge in the pleasures of life. That's, that's the essence of the American dream. Not only that, it also describes narcissism, which we see so much around us as well. I can do what I want for my pleasure because I deserve it, and nobody can stop me. That's, that's how some people live, and those are even attitudes that uh, come into the church. That is not the attitude of lovers of God to which Paul contrasts this whole list of 18 characteristics. It's rather, this is a list of godlessness. What I find intriguing is that this list was relevant for Timothy in the first century and quite accurately describes what we see around us in the 21st century, a full 2,000 years later. Humans have not changed that much in the last 2,000 years. I'm not going to dwell on these 18 characteristics, but I pulled the word uh, used or translated from five different translations. And so I'm just going to walk down through here and just briefly uh, use the various words used in the various translations uh, for, for these 18 characteristics. The first one, lovers of self, lovers of their own selves, lovers of themselves. Pretty clear. Lovers of money and covetous are the two words that were used for the second one. Number three, proud. Boasters, boastful. Number four, arrogant, proud. Number five, abusive, blasphemers, revilers, slanderers. And I find this interesting, the word abusive. We see that far too often 
uh, being covered up in churches today. I had to think of that, uh, you know, the, whether it's sexual abuse and so forth. There's a, been a pattern of that too frequently in the past. Disobedient to their parents. That's one I think we can all relate to probably, you know. But that how we, our regard for our parents says something about our, whether we're godly or not. Ungrateful, unthankful. Number eight is unholy. And that is exact word used in all five translations that I looked at. Nine, heartless, without natural affection, unloving, hard-hearted, without love. Number 10, unappeasable, truce breakers, irreconcilable, unforgiving. Number 11, slanderous, false accusers, malicious gossips. Number 12, without self-control, incontinent. And um, a phrase that instead of the without self-control, maybe another way of just putting, describing that in a, not in a negative way, is out of control. Might be another way of describing that. Number 13, brutal, fierce, savage. Number 14, not loving good, despisers of those that are good, haters of good, no interest for what is good. I think we could paraphrase this or state it another way, perhaps, and that is loving evil, loving wickedness. Because if you have, if you despise or uh, don't love what is good, you really are embracing evil. Number 15, treacherous, traitors. 16, reckless, heady, or rash. Number 17, swollen with conceit, high-minded, conceited. And then the last one, lovers of pleasure or pleasures and loving pleasure is how that was translated. You look over that list, it sounds quite awful, and yet at the same time it's also convicting. These issues were a challenge then in Timothy's day and continues to be a reality today. Not in every church, but these are characteristics that have invaded too many churches. There are individuals within so-called Christianity and in churches with these characteristics. They, they'll mask them, they fake it, they pretend to be something they're not. Why? Because they love themselves and their ambitions more than they love God. And what I find interesting, it is also a descriptive list of what we see in major news stories today. Whether it's politics or religion or crime or the gender confusion, we see these things all around us. These are the characteristics that permeate the culture around us. And it's also in the church because they are, it's the result of being unrepentant 
and godless living. Paul contrasts these 18 things to how we love God. He says, rather than lovers of God. People are doing, living this way rather than loving God. We're lovers of something. Do we love God above everything else, or do we love ourselves, or any of the other 16 items, 17 items listed there? Sometimes these even have the appearance of godliness. They might appear to be religious, pretend to be godly, act like Christians, but obviously they lack something. It's just a facade. It's not real. They lack the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and they do it, attempt to live this out in their own strength. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think some of these characteristics listed by Paul come mighty close to stomping on our own toes, my own toes. Are we truly loving God or something else? Do we simply appear godly? Do we have the evidence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Do we allow the Holy Spirit to give us the power we need and live out of that rather than out of our own strength? Paul concludes this list with a very simple sentence at the end of verse 5 and a command avoid such people three words avoid these people he instructs Timothy to simply stay away from avoid turn away from these kinds of people this is the first of two commands that Paul gives in this uh, chapter and he's telling Timothy, turn away from the kinds of people that are listed in those 18 characteristics. Don't get pulled into this deception. Everyone is vulnerable. Watch yourself and keep your distance. Later, he gives another command and elaborates with additional helpful advice. And so avoiding is the first aspect of how he is to think about this and so forth. Continuing in verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. <clears throat> One of the reasons we're to avoid these kinds of people that were described earlier is that they prey on the most vulnerable among us, deceiving them with lies. And he specifies weak women here. But there are other vulnerable people as well. 
it's not saying that only weak women are subject to uh, this, but that is one description. But he's saying these vulnerable people are trapped by sin and worldly passions, and they are unwilling and unable to recognize, uh, acknowledge the, the godlessness. As I was thinking about this, and I'm not saying that this is uh, exactly what Timothy, what Paul is thinking as he writes to Timothy, but I had to think about religious cults. Cults often have leaders who claim to have access to and knowledge of the truth, while his followers are encouraged to learn from him, and yet they're never going to be able to quite attain the full knowledge that he has. And here Paul is writing to Timothy about these people, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. It's, it's, they're being deceived, and, and they don't even realize it. Janus and Jambres are likely, oh, these names are not mentioned anywhere else in scripture, but they are likely the unnamed magicians in Exodus who were able to throw down their rods and it, turned their it turns into a snake, um, turn the Nile and turn water into blood and so forth. <clears throat> they were able to duplicate some of these plagues in Egypt, but the bottom line is they were counterfeiters. And Satan is a counterfeiter. And so they were, they were able to, to mimic what... Uh, they were able to mimic what Moses did, but it was, it was only that. They were only mimicking that. Counterfeiters oppose the truth. As he mentions then in verse, uh, right after that, these men oppose the truth which is Jesus Christ. They have corrupt minds, and they've disqualified themselves regarding faith. So this is serious. Ultimately, these counterfeiters, these false teachers, these deceivers, will be exposed for who they really are. Then he continues in verse 10, shifting the focus now, to the idea of abiding in truth. We are to avoid the godlessness. We are to abide in truth. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul now shifts his focus away from the godlessness that will be and is prevalent both around us and perhaps in the church and contrasts that with a more hopeful and positive message of encouragement and hope in the face of this reality. Remember, Paul is about to be executed. And I find it interesting, this sentence that he has here, I'm sure that they were filled with incredible emotion as he wrote them, and maybe even more so for Timothy as he read them. You've followed, he, 
Timothy was a protege. Timothy had spent a lot of time with Paul. And Paul is saying, you followed my teaching. You've seen my conduct. You've followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy saw all of this firsthand. And Paul is summarizing the essence of this life of discipling Timothy in a single sentence here. He was, this is like a father-son relationship. He was, Paul was the apostle, Timothy the disciple, and Timothy had modeled his own life after Paul's teachings and conduct. Paul had poured himself into Timothy as he would his own son. And then he continues in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. <clears throat> now, these verses are not easy to hear. They're not easy to read. Who here doesn't want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? I believe we all do. That's why we're here this morning. But Paul states here that all who desire that will be persecuted. Now, we don't need to fear persecution. There's going to be difficulties that we face. But, you know, through those difficulties, through even potential persecution, we have the privilege to boldly stand with the one who redeemed us, the King of Kings. We can stand with him. We don't have anything to fear. We're ambassadors for King Jesus and his eternal kingdom. And we've been placed here now for a reason. And we're not here alone. Our Redeemer and King is empowering us with what we need through the Holy Spirit as we obediently follow him. Nearly 500 years ago, when early Anabaptists chose to be baptized as believers, they were publicly declaring their willingness to die for their faith. And many did. We don't face death by declaring our allegiance to Jesus Christ and it's possible that we fail to adequately grasp the magnitude of our decision to follow Christ. It is important, and we need to, to think about that. And we are declaring our allegiance, giving our life for, uh, to follow Christ, for a cause that is bigger than, our, than ourselves. Will we face persecution? for a desire to live godly lives for Christ Jesus in this country? Perhaps. I can't say that we, you won't. If or when we do, what will be our response to our Savior and our Redeemer? Will we betray him like Judas did? Or will we take a courageous stand like Paul and the other 11 disciples? If we do choose to stand, God's going to empower those disciples to stand faithfully for truth, even in the face of opposition. 
being a true disciple of Jesus Christ will require taking a stand for our King. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here we have the second command given here in this chapter. First, Paul said, avoid the godless people, he described. Here he commands Timothy to continue in what you have learned growing up and now firmly believe. Timothy was taught the truth of the gospel, likely by his mother and grandmother, as referenced in 1 Timothy, but so much more than that. He was not only taught, but he also firmly believed. He was convinced. He had convictions for. He had the firm assurance that these teachings that he believed were totally true and reliable. Plus, Paul had also come along and taught him as well. And Paul is encouraging Timothy that regardless of what he faces, continue, remain, abide, embrace the truth of God's word. Always come back to this. Abide in the truth of scripture and God. Now, culturally, we Christians face some strong headwinds even here in this country. There's no two ways about that. Increasingly, Christianity is openly mocked and ridiculed and even condemned as fascist or intolerant. What's interesting is that other religions, such as Islam and Judaism and Hinduism, are off limits for such mockery, but somehow Christianity isn't. Christianity is fair game. Taking a stand against the lies of the LGBTQ and the transgender ideology will potentially result in marginalization or even outright assault. Gender is not a social construct. It is a biological reality, and yet you can get in trouble for saying that. Designating or using preferred pronouns is validating and normalizing this false ideology. And I think Christians should simply avoid that, either designating or using preferred pronouns. It is something that I believe that we're going to have to take a stand for. He wraps up this chapter with two very familiar verses. And these are the two verses that most frequently are referenced in this passage. So he's laid out, avoid this godlessness and rather embrace or continue in, abide in truth. And he concludes in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
it's quite uh, common and easy to pull these two verses out of Scripture and just say, here's evidence for the, or proof for the veracity of Scripture. And I, I can understand that. They do summarize and explain that the inspiration of Scripture is that it is the Word of God for us and, um, and all believers. However, in context, Paul is further validating that Timothy continue in those things that he was taught and now has developed deep convictions for. All Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God. The literal Greek, the Greek word literally or transliterated would be God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. It's interesting, that does not mean it was dictated by God, but his thoughts are expressed through the individual writers who wrote scripture. It is God breathed. And he continues, all scripture is profitable. It's advantageous. It's helpful for many areas in life. And he lists four here. And in a way, uh, these four summarize kind of the scope of life. All scripture is profitable for doctrine or for teaching, for instruction, for learning. It's for uh, helping us learn to know what to believe. Um, one commentator has kind of a, a good way of remembering these four. And for this one, he says, it's, all, it's scripture, this is to know what is right. That's what scripture is there for, to know what is right. And then the next one, all scripture is profitable for reproof or for refutation or to discern what not to believe, to refute those false lies, those lies, uh, the false truths that are declared, the untruths. This aspect is to know, helps us to know what is not right. So the first one, it helps us to know what is right, and this helps us to know what is not right. And then he continues. Scripture is profitable for correction or for restoration, for improving our lives, to learn what not to do. Uh, it's interesting. This is the only place in the entire Bible where this Greek word is used. Uh, and it has the idea of restoring to an upright state. So it's like setting things up, correcting. And... Uh, this other this commentator said, and this is how we know how to get it, how to get right. Uh, it's it's to correct, and then the last one is for our learning, for instruction, for education, for instruction in righteousness or tutoring. Understanding what should be done, and this is how to stay right. So these four, just kind of summarizing, is first one: what is right what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. That's the essence of what Scripture is for. And he continues then that this, that Scripture, all Scripture, 
equips believers, fully equips believers. It's, it's a complete solution, if you will. It's the complete answer. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture is living, it is active, it is, it is truly a life-giving document that we have here. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word empowers and equips us to face those difficulties, the challenges, the, the persecution when it comes. Now, this doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just because we have a Bible. Um, equipping happens through engagement with and the discipline of filling our minds and hearts with God's inspired word. God's word is our spiritual nourishment throughout the week. You know, we gather with fellow believers on a Sunday morning to worship together and are spiritually fed and rejuvenated, but that alone is not going to sustain us for the coming week. A daily diet of scripture is crucial to our spiritual health and our strength. Reading, meditating, praying. Just recently I heard of a new concept of this that I think is, is very much worth uh, trying, especially if you're like me and can sometimes find myself distracted or not focusing on what I'm reading. I'm reading the words but not really paying attention like I should be. Choose a book of the Bible, not one too long to start with, a New Testament book. Get a new notebook, and each day simply write out 10 verses. Don't do more than 10. Just take 10 verses and write it out. It forces us to slow down, pay attention to the words, the punctuation, think about what we're writing, and we're going to remember it better throughout the day. And so that's one way of just embedding God's word in our lives. Once you get done with that book, start another book and, and just continue to do that. Anchoring and grounding ourselves in God's word every day is one of the best ways both to protect ourselves against the deception of ungodliness and to stand for truth even in the face of persecution. In conclusion, those two commands, I just come back to them. Avoid the godlessness and lies, the deception of the enemy that is so prevalent all around us, and rather choose to abide in truth. Embrace reality. Remain grounded in God's word. And then, along with that, be prepared to stand with the King of Kings for truth in a world of confusion and deceit. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, thank you for the hope in these final words of Paul to Timothy. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, convict us of these truths in our own hearts. I pray that you would uh, empower us through your spirit to avoid the godlessness described early in this chapter and rather abide in and embrace the truth of your word. Embrace the truth of reality. I pray that as we go from here that you would direct our steps. I pray that you would give us the courage to stand for what is right, for truth, and to boldly stand with you as our King of Kings, as a faithful ambassador of yours. Ask a blessing on the noon meal that's been prepared. May we use the strength to honor you here in our fellowship and as we go about our responsibilities throughout this week. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.